being interested in low carb and doing low carb myself. Um, but actually doing the dietetics course almost, almost drummed it out of me. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Meat Medic Podcast. We're actually recording this time. Now today I've got my special guest. I'm joined by Melanie Walters, accredited dietitian, uh, who is passionate about food and cooking. Welcome, Mel. Hello, how are you, Sarif? I am very, very good. Thank you for joining us this evening. Now, Mel, you are a dietitian and you love to combine your love of food with your desire to help other people. Uh, you enjoy helping people optimize their health and well-being by improving their lifestyle and you practice evidence-based nutrition strategies to help them meet their goals through practical dietary recommendations and sustainable health and lifestyle changes. And your main kind of focus area of interest is therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, aka low carb. And we'll definitely <laughs> talk about that today. Now, you've obviously said in your bio that you find low carb eating easy to adapt to your busy lifestyle, including plenty of eating out, which is interesting. So that's good. Uh, and it helped you to reduce and maintain your weight without feeling restricted. Is that right? That is right. Perfect. So, yes. So you've had success with low carb dietitians, uh, low carb uh, nutrition, sorry. And uh, you're a low carb dietitian yourself, of course. And you've obviously seen very similar success stories with patients. So we're going to get into all of that today, if that is okay with you. Sounds good. Fantastic. Well, first of all, Mel, I guess I've introduced yourself, but maybe if you could introduce yourself to the audience and you know, your story. Sure. Um, well, as Suresh said, I'm a low-carb dietitian um, and I practice at a medical practice in Paddington called Sante Medical. Um, I haven't been a dietitian for too many years. I came to it later in life. Um, but I probably came to low-carb nutrition, um, not a major big health journey like a lot of people have, but I found an Atkins book in a second-hand bookshop um, when I was about 30. And... And I'd always, you know, and this was prior to becoming a dietitian, always been interested in food, nutrition, was toying around with becoming a nutritionist around those times and then, you know, tried this low-carb diet and was like, this is actually, this is pretty easy. This is pretty sensible. Um, and yeah. And so how long have you been a dietitian now then for? Six years. So graduated, ended 2017. Okay. And what kind of what made you become a dietitian well I originally went to uni you know 25 years ago to become a teacher um realized that wasn't for me um went and worked in finance for many years all the while always being really interested in health and nutrition played around with the idea of maybe becoming a naturopath but yeah. really really wanted to do something evidence-based um, so went back and did nutrition by um, distance education through Charles Sturt, thinking I'll become a nutritionist, this is all good, but the further you dig into becoming a nutritionist, the further you realise you can't really do anything with that. Um, so had to bite the bullet and go back to uni full-time in my mid-30s, um, do the 20 weeks of prac, do it all. Um, and this is, you know, post being interested in low-carb and doing low-carb myself, um, but actually doing the dietetics course almost almost drummed it out of me. Okay. Yeah. So Explain. <laughs> it is just the dietetics is so based around the Australian dietary guidelines um, mm. that is, you know, really just drummed into you and sort of was, you know, believing the uh, hype. At one point, um, until I started actually practicing and trying to get some results, you know, trying to get people to eat more cereals and grains and it just wasn't working. And I had to, I had to go back to, to low carb. So, so you were low carb before you became a dietitian? Yes. Okay. But you presumably then didn't get taught anything really about low carb in dietetics, you know, kind of Nothing. teaching. Training. The only um, real education that we had around carbohydrates was around carbohydrate counting for diabetics, um, right. but even and that that was not at particularly carbohydrate limiting. It was just talking about units of carbohydrates, the dosing for insulin, around that. But it was definitely never anything about carbohydrate restriction. It just wasn't on the radar. 
Right. So it was really the only kind of real mention of carbohydrates was in, in the context of insulin for diabetics, basically. Yeah, definitely. And that wasn't and even for like reducing insulin. It was just for dosing insulin dosing. for injections. Dosing for insulin or um, talking about carbohydrates evenly across the day. And that was, that was particularly the advice around gestational diabetes. Right. Um, so, you know, it might be 30 for breakfast, 15 for a morning tea, 30 for lunch, 15 for afternoon tea, 30 for dinner might be. And so that's possibly a slight carbohydrate restriction. <laughs> maybe. I mean, for some, I mean, I was working this out the other day. I mean, for myself eating maybe about 3,000, 3,500 calories a day, and we can talk about calories a bit later on. Um, you know, I think if I was following the standard kind of advice, it would be about 65, 70 roughly percent of calories from carbohydrates. You know, that's something like 650, 700 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is like... Pfft. What is that going to do to you, really? <laughs> it's just like insane. I mean, maybe 3,000 will probably be about 500. But yeah, like it's just crazy. Like how much, even like, I mean, and I've never really talked to me about him on the show that much. Paul Saladino, I don't know if you know that name. Uh, and his animal-based diet, I mean, this is kind of predominantly a carnivore channel, but he gets a bad reputation in the carnivore community about, you know, just being addicted to sugar. We can talk about sugar addiction, of course, as well. Um, but even he is 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 not even eating that much carbs a day. You know, he's eating, what, like 200, 300 maybe grams of carbs a day at most. And yet standard advice would be like, yeah, five, 600. For the amount that he's eating, I think he says he eats about the same, three and a half thousand calories. It, it would be, yeah, like five, 600 grams of carbs a day. Yeah, which is insane. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, well, exactly. The advice is, you know, four to six serves of grains or cereals, which is, you know, and so that's before adding in any two serves of fruit and your, um, you know, milk, veggies, everything. So just based on four to six grains alone is, you know, if you're averaging 15 to 20 per serve, yeah, you're up over 100 well over a hundred just in grains. Like, yeah. Very, very easy so. to go up if you're, if you're reaching grains, mm. you know, bread, pasta, et cetera. I mean, that's really where it's very, very easy. It's pretty hard with fruit to actually go yeah. that high. I mean, like something like blueberries, I think is like four grams of sugar per hundred grams. You know, it's like, how much do you have to eat to get to like four, 500, 600 yeah, grams? Exactly. That's a lot of blueberries. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would even be a lot of bananas, really. Yeah, (laughs) it's even like honey, you know, it's honey is what, like 70, I think 70 grams of sugar per hundred, roughly. Like even that to get to like five, six hundred, like five, six hundred, you know, grams of of sugar, you'd have you'd have to eat like 600 grams of honey or something a day. Like it's just. Yeah, it's crazy amounts, like how much we're kind of advised to eat. Uh, so so you really, I mean, in terms of, of kind of carb counting for insulin, was it anything to do with reducing insulin requirements or is it merely like, no. okay, well, you're injecting this much insulin, therefore you need this much carbs? Yeah. Well, so it would be, it was about generally saying, okay, you're going to eat this dinner that's got 60 grams of carbs. How many units of insulin do you need to dose for that? Right. But never so, about... You know, Maybe just Never reduce saying, the carbs, you know, then you can reduce the insulin. Exactly. When it was all, it was very much centered around giving um, people with diabetes a a normal um, experience, I guess. Um, which, I mean, I can see the value in for sure. But yeah, when there is another way, you know, which you know is still completely enjoyable and carries lots less risk, um, I don't. Yeah, I don't understand why there was no no real talk about about it. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've heard on on this show before um, with people saying that, you know, with kind of like uh, people with diabetes, kind of just this 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 old style education. Really, I mean, I think just some people still talk about it nowadays. But just saying, you can live a perfectly normal life and don't worry about it. Just dose your insulin as high as you want. Eat what you like. Don't worry about it. Live a perfectly normal life. Do what your friends do, everything. I think uh, Tracy spoke about that on the show with her daughter. And, you know, basically, like, this advice is actually quite dangerous for people. And they're just jacking up their insulin to to compensate. And then all of those problems associated with insulin down the line. Exactly. And it's just the whole, you know, the bigger 
the bigger jumps, the bigger, the the more danger, really. You know, like if you're talking about bigger dosages, you're going to have bigger hypos at the other side. Like, mm. You mentioned, um, I want to come back to something you said, say. So you said you were kind of taken in by the hype. <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? Well, I guess, you know, you spend, I did my undergrad in nutrition, which was a lot more fluid, and then came and did this two years intense, full-time program and you're on campus and you're with a bunch of young enthusiastic um, students as well but then every every day you just push the dietary guidelines and you know it just it, it, it sounds it sounds reasonable I guess and that you know you're doing um practice consults and you know you're analyzing people's diets against Australian dietary guidelines and it's just what's pushed at you mm. and I was like, okay, well, this must, this must, this must work. This is what people are doing, and you know, I, I was still as much as low carb had worked for me for many years. I just thought this way could obviously work as well, and went out to practice. Oh, you know, and so did all my twenty weeks of prac, and you kind of you're in hospitals then, and so you're providing more specific advice for a lot of the time, and so it's a way. It's not you know specific medical advice, organizing feeds and things. So you get away from, you know, day-to-day consults, you know, or weight loss or, you know, GP kind of stuff. Mm. And then when I landed in the workforce the following year, um, you know, doing care plans, trying to manage people's weight and chronic diseases, and there I am, you know, going through their diet, in, in some instances asking people to eat more carbs. It just wasn't it wasn't sitting well with me at all yeah it felt wrong wasn't seeing results um then ended up getting a different dietetics job with a low-carb friendly dietitian and so and that was just like oh so happy to actually realize that there were low-carb dietitians that's when you were Um, doing your training yeah so this is after like after i'd graduated and i met um this other dietitian, Liz, who um, I ended up working for. And that's when I went back to, that's when I started actually practicing low-carb nutrition and mm. can actually see, see the power of it. Did that concern you going back to low-carb? And we, we spoke about this a little bit off air. You said you're happy to kind of, you know, talk about it. But, um, you know, traditionally, if we go back uh, not quite 10 years, you know, kind of Dietitians Australia, Dietetics Association Australia, you know, they were not super happy about low carb. Oh. We've spoke about Gary Fetke on this channel before. Uh, people will probably know his case. You know, Dietitians Australia, Dietitians, you know, Australian Association, whatever it was called, I think back then they maybe changed their name now. We're not very happy with him giving low carb no. advice to his patients. And they, as far as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, is they were the ones who essentially kind of led some of this campaign basically to, to, to get rid of him. Did that worry yeah. you, doing low-carb work did, I as think, a dietitian with that in the background? I think that was a big part of why I just, when I went through university, just thinking, okay, that's not how you, you know, that's not what you do. Because I had heard that whole story. There was a dietitian at the same time who had been, um, had her APD status removed and so I was a bit wary of it, and that's why I just really didn't think that low-carb dietitians were an actual thing. And um, But then when I met Liz, which would have been probably around 2018, actually, the um, Diabetes Australia had recently released a position statement um, basically saying that low-carb diets were um, an effective evidence-based method of um, dealing with with treating diabetes. So that gave me confidence. Uh, and then even actually Dietitians Connection, which is another big sort of dietetics education platform, they had released a webinar about low-carb nutrition as well. So thought it was pretty safe to start practicing. Gave you some of the kind of legitimacy, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Something to fall back on. Yeah, there was enough evidence around by then, I think, to really to say this is this is – an effective method. Mm. It's still quite hard, though, to find a dietitian. In my experience, as, as a GP mm. here in Australia, 
it's quite hard to find dietitians who actually will do low carb work with patients. Yes, definitely. And I see that every day in practice. I see people who come to me reluctantly saying, I've seen a dietitian before and they gave me Australian Guide to Healthy Eating advice. And I say, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, people <laughs> have their backup and it, it can be hard. And, yeah, definitely I have a few doctors who refer to me who like, obviously they like, don't refer to the doctor in their own practice. I mean, sorry, the dietitian in their own practice because, mm. yeah, yeah, because they're still giving out that old school advice. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I kind of have to deal with as well. I mean, like one of the practices I work in does have a, a dietitian and – I've had conversations with them, um, which were not especially fruitful, uh, excuse the pun, talking about food. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I kind of asked them, you know, just, just, you know, what, what do you think about low carb? And they kind of were just like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really believe in it. And I was like, okay, well then like no referrals base, basically. <laughs> like, you kind of just shot yourself in the foot there. Sorry. But you know, I was like, oh, okay. Like, why don't you believe in it? She's like, oh, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think it really works. And you know, like, yeah, I'm not really sure it's a thing. They didn't really teach us that. And so I was like, okay, fair enough. She wasn't saying like, oh, it's stupid or anything like that. But you know, given like 99% of the work I do with diet is around low carb nutrition. Yeah. I'm kind of looking for someone <laughs> who might actually support what I'm saying. And it's not going to go against it actively. So maybe that's a good segue. Um, unless you had something more you wanted to add to that. No, I was just going to say, I think, a, you know, a good dietitian really should be able to support a patient with, a, if a patient comes with a diet or, or, or even, you know, like if a, if a practice, if a doctor comes saying, I'd like you to help this patient with this particular diet, really, Probably a dietitian should, within their own boundaries, I guess, be supportive. Like, uh, like I will see, I, I'm not a carnivore, <laughs> um, but I see, you know, plenty of carnivore patients because that is the, you know, the nature of low-carb, sort of yeah. the continuum sometimes, and I'm very happy to support those patients. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, technically carnivore is, is a low-carb diet, so it's within the guidelines, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's within the guidelines. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good point. I mean, it's kind of like like me, you know, someone who who really specializes in, in diet, nutrition, you know, work to help patients, you know, and then coming them coming to me with, with type 2 diabetes or something, you know, we're talking about diabetes today and then saying, yeah, look, I, I know what you're saying, but I kind of, I think I just need the medications, like I can't really deal with this right now, whatever, and then me saying, no, you know what, I'm not going to help you go away. No, like I'm a doctor. I'm gonna I'm gonna meet them where they're at. I'm gonna prescribe exactly. those medications. I might chip away at the diet and so on, but I'm not just gonna turn them away and say, you know what, I'm not I'm not interested in <laughs> dealing with what you want to deal with, you know. So, yeah. um, I think that's maybe a good segue though into what do dietitians do with people because, and I'm, I'm gonna frame that a little bit differently. A lot of people that I see, this is as as with my with like my my GP hat on, my core GP. You know, I see people who are struggling with their lifestyle illnesses and they really could benefit from dietary advice. And they want, I think they'd benefit from seeing a dietitian because I know what dietitians can do for them. But in their mind, all they're going to do is tell them, you know, what not to eat. What, what do dietitians do? Why should people see dietitians to help them with their health? There's a few reasons, but one of those reasons is to help them work out what to eat, I think, rather than what not to eat. And I think where dietitians can really be helpful is, you know, providing, sometimes it can be as simple as providing some accountability because, you know, anyone can get up tomorrow and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do that low carb diet I keep reading about. But by four o'clock when the chocolate is calling from the tea room, you know, it can be, but why? It doesn't matter. No one knows. You know, so that's, you know, that's that's a key part of, of seeing, I mean, obviously that could be any health professional. That could be you. Like, but but the thing, you know, like I take the time to go through a person's diet history, look at where, you know, what tweaks we can make to their particular diet rather than here's a, here's a low-carb meal plan 
um, go and knock yourself out. Like I say, oh, okay, so you're currently having, you know, cereal for breakfast. What, what could you have eggs or is that too hard? Could we add in some yogurt here? Kind of, you know, really, really that personalized nutrition, I think, is, is where a dietitian comes into their own. Just that really going through a person's diet, looking at the, the gaps, the, the improvements you can make. So that's. Yeah. So it's not just, I know it's not this, but just, you know, devil's advocate. This is patients often say to me, you know, like, am I just going to get a slap on the wrist and, and told I'm a naughty boy because, you know, I didn't eat what they wanted me to eat. That's not what you're going to do as a dietitian. No, and it's much more of a coaching <laughs> style of relationship too, I think. So it's coming back, you know, coming back for a review appointment and saying, oh, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, um, what do we need to work on, what, what's you know, oh, great, you're getting your main meals right, but you're still getting snacky over here, kind of. So really trying to work with that person to to make the diet work for them because there's a, you know, like anything, there's so many ways to do low carb and it's everything from carnivore through to, you know, 100 grams a day sort of thing, you know, like so. Yeah. And you can really see some major improvements at any end of that spectrum. Yeah, no, I think you absolutely can there, yeah. Um, so what kind of goals do you have for patients is it more led by the patient coming in saying i want to do this diet can you help me with this or is it more like i want to lose weight i just want to be healthy i don't know why i'm here (laughs) like what's the normal avenue for that well at sante where i work we do a lot of medical weight loss so i work with um the owner the practice owner there dr jackie montefiore and we do a lot of tandem weight loss appointments is is often our start so in that instance obviously a person has come for weight loss Um, and so then we you know set some goals around that and work towards those but as part of that often about a lot more than weight loss it's about you know improving metabolic health so that person might also come in with fatty liver they might Um, be pre-diabetic so it's you know I'm not particularly there to help people you know get bikini body ready or lose the last five kilos I'm there to help people improve their life their quality of life age better all of those kind of things Mm. and what do you kind of base as a as a dietitian as a low-carb dietitian maybe especially what do you kind of base your, your your kind of targets on are you looking for you know, just to improve people's health, like diet generally, is it more looking at micronutrients, macronutrients, you know, meal frequencies, timing? Is it just kind of like all of it? It's probably about all of that, really. (laughs) Um, But, you know, probably the start is focused on lowering that carbohydrate intake. And that can, you know, and for some people that could be as, some very small changes, you know, depending on, you know, scales of, you know, readiness to change. Like I had a patient not that long ago who we just negotiated that she wouldn't have a sandwich every day for lunch. That was, you know, so that was step one in the, exactly. So some people are ready to go and they're ready to cut it down to 30 grams of carbs tomorrow. But other people want to know, okay, what, you know, what small changes can I make to get there? So it's very personalized. Yeah. So you obviously work with patients, just, you know, meeting them where they are talking about obviously some low carb diets and just, just generally, you know, do you have like a goal in mind to where you want to get them to, or is it just, is it quite fluid where you just, you just have to kind of go with the flow and just, just stepwise, just improve what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on, on the patient and their goals and their health, you know, markers and things like that. But, you know, often we'll set a pretty achievable, let's, let's you know get to the next you know so there might be 94 kilos let's let's hit 90 so we usually set a small achievable goal to work towards Mm. and then you know that might be part of a longer goal it might be going to work together for the next year and try and you know lose 20 kilos yeah and so you work a lot with low carb nutrition and do you kind of have like a preferred you know, like amount of carbs, like what, what do you kind of define as low carb and, and where do you try and take people? Is it more into the keto kind of carnivore space? Is it more just like general low carb? What do you normally do with patients? For a 
reasonably motivated patients. I try to start them off pretty low in terms of that change in, you know, like change over from being a carb burner to a fat burner. So I try to get them into a ketosis kind of level. So aiming for sort of under around 30 to 40 grams of carbs generally for those, especially important, I think, for those first few weeks to really get through that low carb flu kind of stage and get people feeling yeah. feeling like it's actually working and get a, get some get some good losses as well. And that's, that can be really motivated. If someone goes hard on it for three or four weeks and loses three or four kilos, they come back super motivated. Mm. So yeah, no, I, I had a patient get, today. Get things off to a good start. Yeah, I had a patient today who, um, you know, they've lost like five kilos in, 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 in four weeks and, you know, from – a month ago that was came in saying like I can't ever lose weight and you know I feel terrible and, and so on and they haven't even really done anything that special they've just kind of started watching what they're eating a bit and but it's giving them that motivation like oh wow I can actually I can actually do this yeah you know which is I really really it, nice it really is and it's it's incredibly satisfying to hear people say oh you know I'm at my lowest weight that I've been at for five years or you know and it's and sometimes I think people find it really a revelation like that you know you don't have to eat every couple of hours you don't you know you don't have to not have fat yeah it's 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 kind of revelation for people like you said that they don't it doesn't have to be that hard as well which is which is really nice and and often for these people yeah it's the first time in in years that maybe ever that they've really managed to lose any weight um which is really nice for them because usually what people want to do um i guess that's that's a decent segue then into like calories and weight loss what's your what's your view on on calories i mean i recently put up a video on my channel uh talking about calories actually do matter but maybe not in the way people think what's what's your take on calories as a as a dietitian well my ongoing sort of statement to my patients is we don't count calories but calories still count so it's a bit of a cheesy <laughs> That's the title for the podcast. (laughs) There you go. Perfect. Um, But, you know, because I think I don't, I don't tend to get people to count calories, but like if if a patient of mine is really hitting a big plateau, um, we'll do some tracking in um, Easy Diet Diary. And usually I'm doing that tracking more to track their carbs, but it does provide insight then into calories. Mm. And, think you can definitely still be overeating um and so but yeah i don't i don't i don't ever set anyone a particular calorie target um but yeah i definitely i think you can still be you can still be overeating is my i think you can i think you can i mean that's i was certainly guilty of that on on carnivore and i spoke a bit about that on that episode that you know, I think I kind of fell into this like can't, calories don't matter on carnivore kind of, you know, mentality. And that's very freeing to not have to not be thinking about calories in any shape or form. But at the same time, when you when, when I'm trying to lose weight, trying to lose fat, yeah, like it's kind of, you do actually kind of have to think about that at some point actually. So, but maybe not counting like, okay, I'm literally counting out one calorie, two calories, you know, every single tiny little yeah. thing. Just like a general idea I think it's probably useful. Well, I think like sometimes I talk to people about like if they're having a bit of a plateau, like having a look at, say, your evening meal, like are you using lots of creamy things and cheesy things? Like it's still adding more calories. Can you go back to a more simple meat and veg, meat and salad kind of, you know, and people do that and they go and then, you know, the weight loss restarts because they've just been being a bit too decadent or and it's, you know, so it is, yeah, still matters. Sometimes it's just yeah, that, exactly. that very so don't have to. adjustment. Yeah. How often, um, you know, we're talking about overeating, but how often do you find people undereat? There can be a bit of, I don't find it too often. Like I really, I push protein a lot with my patients. So I don't find I get, I don't get too much under eating. Okay. Mostly overeating. And how much protein are you typically recommending to patients? It depends again on their goals and their, but at least one point five per kilo. So the the audio cut out last slightly. So that was what one to one point five grams per kilogram. 
Yeah, and that and that will be a bit um, dependent on how much weight they've got to lose because I don't sort of, you know, go in for the grams per body mass. Sort of. so, and can go higher sometimes, especially for my um, smaller ladies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think most people, the evidence shows really most people just under-eat protein. Mm, um, definitely. I mean, and it's a big deal. I mean, you know, sarcopenia, sarcopenic obesity. Yeah. It's a really big issue, actually. Yeah, definitely, especially in that in that older population. Mm. So well, I think in, in younger and younger now as well, though. I mean, I, I certainly see this with people, um, you know, where they, they don't actually weigh that much, but they they really don't have much lean body mass. And it's a product of not enough resistance exercise as well, isn't it? It is true. It's both. It absolutely is both. Yeah, not enough protein, not enough, not enough weight training, not enough you know, resistance training. I think this is this is fear about weight training and resistance training that um, you know, especially in women. Uh, I don't know Definitely. why. Probably it's just you know, it's social media and it's magazines and you know all these things. But yeah, and I would like to think that it's getting better now that the aesthetic of Females is that bit more muscular and a bit not, not as you know sort of eighties slim, but yeah, I still don't think I don't and I my main demographic probably is you know women in their forties and fifties, and not a lot of them are including strength training in their regular regime. No, but they really, really should. Mm. They I, really I should. Say it's one of the best things they can do for. You know, for weight loss, for long-term mm. health, for bone density. For everything. Yeah, opportunity, yeah. Absolutely everything. I mean, there's a, I'd love to try and look up the source, but there's a kind of a statistic that I usually quote to people if, if I'm struggling to kind of get through to them. Um, and that's that, um, you know, just maybe slightly paraphrase, I haven't got the quote up in front of me, the statistic, but it's along the lines of, you know, if you can't get up from a chair without using your hands from sitting to standing, you know, you are extremely likely, I can't remember the exact statistic, but extremely likely to basically within a year end up in a nursing home. Oh, wow. Is that for people over a certain age? I think it's just anyone. Or... <laughs> to be, I mean, probably not like babies and stuff, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> like adults, <laughs> you know, like if you can't actually, without using your hands, like if you can't just get up from a chair from sit to standing, you're, you're doing pretty badly, actually. Yeah, I can imagine. Which is, which is actually kind of scary. I mean, there's probably people out there thinking, yeah, shit, I can't do that. <laughs> like, it's actually kind of scary. I know one of the doctors in my, one of my clinics, she does, um, you know, a, uh, like a, 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 a menopause clinic, you know, for, for women. And, uh, you know, she talks to them about all these things. I mean, she gets them to do like, yeah, like, like one-legged squats and stuff. And <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can hardly do those. But the point is, no, know, the point is she's kind of saying that this is actually really important for your health um there's probably going to be some women out there listening to this show who are maybe in that age bracket and thinking okay well yeah this is all good for like 20 year olds but you know what am i going to do is it harder for them to be healthy and lose weight as they're getting older or is that a misconception i don't think it's i don't think it's hmm. When you go through menopause, it does shift where you hold your body fat. Um, so it moves to that more abdominal um, fat. So women can start to really find that very stressful. You know, they've gone from being quite pear-shaped with a flat tummy their whole life and then they start to hold it around their middle. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, the more dangerous kind of fat as well, that visceral fat. And that actually low-carb can be one of the most effective diets for reducing that abdominal fat so i mean it definitely i think it is there is a natural increase there can be an increase in weight around menopause that you have to be sort of fought against i guess you know like it's, it's part of aging but it doesn't mean that you have to resign yourself to it yeah no i think that's well put and i guess at that point yeah if people are struggling then you know to kind of lose weight get healthy i guess that's where they might you might send them back to a doctor and say, like, maybe get some blood tests or see what's going on. Exactly. And I think it's important to, like, I 
much prefer to see some blood tests when I first start working with someone. Like I think, you know, a lot of people just come to me, you know, Google or whatever. And if I can, I will get copies of their recent blood. And, and if I, if they don't have any, I'll ask them to, to see their GP about it because it's really important to have a look at those, you know, the liver markers in particular are really important. Um, seeing what their blood, their fasting glucose is doing. And ideally it's nice to get an insulin if we can get it. Um, and then you can you can sort of see you know and and most people in that in that sort of age range tend to have some level of insulin resistance, um, but you know it's nice to have that baseline to to be able to go back to and to be able to you know retest in three to six months and go look this is what's improved and sometimes that might someone might have only lost four or five kilos they might not be that impressed with their weight loss but they've reversed their prediabetes or they've you know they no longer have fatty liver so. Yeah, I mean, fasting insulin, that, that is such a useful test, I, I feel like. Even, even I mean, I was ideally paired with a fasting glucose, but even without that, just, I'm not sure why you'd ever do that without the fasting glucose, but if for some reason you did, you know, it's just the fasting insulin is is such a useful test. Yeah, a lot of doctors don't actually know about it. And seem quite resistant, like it's never added onto, you know, just the routine annual blood. It's just not no. done. And it's, so, it's such a good marker for metabolic health. Um, yeah, even, definitely. even if you just, even if you used the reference ranges, which I, I'm just a huge bugbear of mine, people just using reference <laughs> ranges. I mean, it's just pretty terrible, but, um, even if you just use the reference ranges, you're going to pick up so many people that you're not going to pick up on an HBA and see, you know, until, until later on. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, and actually it's a really good market. And like you said, a baseline is, is really useful because I mean, I, I don't know, obviously kind of what you're alluding to there, but certainly I see it and I'm sure doctors that you work with as well do you know people coming in and they can sometimes be a bit disillusioned because they're not feeling like they've made massive changes mm. you know but then exactly. you can show and them but actually you have exactly look at, look all at your blood work that you put in <laughs> yes exactly and it's so nice to be able to say you know you might feel like you know you haven't lost the 20 kilos you wanted to lose you lost 10 but what you've actually done is improved your lifespan, which yeah. is which is pretty incredible. Is and, yeah, and your exactly. health is is good now. Yeah, and it maybe wasn't before. So, what what other? I mean, we've mentioned fasting insulin there. What other blood tests should people be maybe thinking of getting from a like a nutrition dietetics kind of you know weight loss perspective? What is a useful blood test? What should they be going to their doctor and asking for? Well, insulin, as you said, fasting glucose, the liver function test. Um, I always like to see vitamin D. I think it's really important. I think there's some Medicare restrictions on how often it can be done. Is that? There are, yes. So Medicare here yeah. in Australia, yes. So if you have, um, there's certain restrictions. There's no restriction, I think, on, on how often. Um, but there are restrictions on certain populations that you have to have a low it meant to be occupationally low sun exposure. I'm not sure what occupationally low sun exposure yeah. as opposed to just like anyone. I mean, yeah, like literally I'm just like shift worker. Yeah, tick. Like I literally work inside all day. Tick, you know, like pretty much everyone anyway. Um, darker skin tone or like, previous vitamin D deficiency, um, you know, like rickets in a child, for example. I mean, there's a, there's a few other things there. But yeah, pretty much everyone actually in Queensland ticks that box because you know, pretty much sundown to sun up to sundown. Like we're 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 at work, <laughs> so we never oh, see the sun. Flip, flip, flip. Oh, we're covering ourselves up. Absolutely, we're not seeing the sun. People are so scared of the sun. Right, we're getting slightly off topic. Back, 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 back yeah. to the blood test. We can talk about that later. Back to the blood test. So, vitamin D really important. I would agree with you entirely there. Yes. For my females, I really like to see iron, but also an interesting one for the men as well. Like I've been seeing a lot of elevated ferritins lately. Um, but yeah, so iron. <laughs> yeah, some link with um, metabolic dysfunction. There is very much yes. Yeah. So metabolic so dysfunction often leads that. yeah leads to a high ferritin. High ferritin can potentially then lead back into a high metabolic or metabolic dysfunction. Yeah, so so that's handy. Those are probably my main go tos, really. Yeah. What about things like vitamins? I mean, you mentioned vitamin D, yes. But I mean, people I come to see can... me and, and they want like vitamin A, vitamin B1, vitamin B2, vitamin B6. I mean, they want literally like every single vitamin. 
under the sun. Yeah, I don't those? tend to request those um, unless someone's got a history of bariatric surgery. Would be the only time I would tend to um, ask for those kind of tests, really. Because I think most, a lot of them are not a good marker for for adequate intake as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, correct. I've spoken about that on this channel before. You know, I think with a lot of blood tests, people get confused about what they're there for. And they, they come in and they say, oh, yeah, um, I just want some bloods. You're like, okay, well, like, what do you, what do you look at? What, what answer are you, your question are we trying to answer here? They just, oh, no, I just want some blood. I forgot about cholesterol there. Oh, <laughs> yes, well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, probably people who want cholesterol. Uh, we can talk about that. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people, they don't understand what the blood tests are really for. And they think, well, if the levels are fine, then they're fine. Which actually. GPs will just say that too, though. Oh, everything's going to change. See you in two years. They do. And this is a huge bugbear of mine with reference ranges. Oh my God, it drives me absolutely crazy. Just looking at, oh yeah, it's in the reference range, off you go. I mean, I've seen yeah. no end of patients with, with like pre-diabetes not picked up because, oh, it didn't, it just mm. wasn't flagged. It just wasn't red. Or things said like, oh, sugar's looking a bit high. We should keep an eye on it. Off you go. <laughs> Yeah, like 10 years. Like, yeah, okay. Like, maybe we should do something about that. No, no, no. Doctor said it was fine. You know, it's fine. Okay, fine. Uh, (laughs) It definitely does happen. Um, Maybe that's a good good kind of segue into nutritional deficiencies. I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. Um, How often are you kind of seeing people with nutritional deficiencies nowadays? particularly often I mean I see a lot of women with low iron is pretty routine um a lot and quite a few people with low vitamin d um and what I've been seeing quite a bit of in recent or probably this year is um you know women in their late 40s early 50s with osteopenia which I find to be a a huge concern um but yeah you as I said I don't test a lot for other nutrition, other nutrients. So, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken a little bit about anti-nutrients on this channel before, you know, I recently put up an episode about oxalates and, and are they destroying your health? You know, brackets probably are. Um, what's, what's your take on anti-nutrients? Um, you know, am I, am I way off the mark here? Is this, is this a thing? Is it not a thing? Is it something that we should be worried about? I'm a pretty staunch omnivore and and an advocate for vegetables. That's fine. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm not on the anti-nutrient front. I think if you've got a diverse enough diet that's not just loading yourself up on one thing over and over again, I think these anti-nutrients become less of a problem. So unless you're sort of every day you're having – you know, or every day you're having you know, certain nightshade vegetables or, you know, you can just, if you have that food diversity and a good enough rotation and, you know, you're having a good mix of cooked vegetables and salad vegetables, not overdoing it on legumes, I think I don't, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about them. No, that's, and of that's, course... That's fair enough, yeah. You go. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's fair enough. And I think you're probably right there that, yeah, if people actually did just kind of rotate um they probably wouldn't wouldn't have those issues actually or or maybe a lot later on down the line but yeah often the people that i see it's like yeah i have spinach like five times a day yeah (laughs) yeah it's probably not good for you like do anything five times a day just like that as a main meal is probably not great yeah exactly i think people tend to do this thing where they just get onto a food and they just overdo it when if you look at, you know, trying to build a, a balanced diet, you really want to be including, you know, different plants, different proteins, you know, on a, on a fairly good rotation. Yeah, I mean, I guess one group of people that could probably be accused of, of eating too much of one thing would be carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to talk about that. And, you know, even when I see, <laughs> you know, the carnivore population, I'm always saying, like, could you mix up the protein? Are you eating eggs? Like... Tell me I how think, you're having the theory. <laughs> I, I think it's a very good point, though. And I do say this to say the same thing to patients. 
you know, and apart from my like crazy 30 days of ribeye, you know, all I ate <laughs> is ribeye. And I did, to be fair, have issues on that. And I, that, I did that as an experiment, you know, because I, I took that to the nth degree and said, well, I, I really like ribeyes. I feel really good when I eat ribeyes. Therefore, they're amazing. And I'm just going to eat ribeyes and knowing I'm going to get some issues. But the whole point was to kind of, you know, prove a point that you can't just eat one thing, no matter how good you think it is. You can't just eat one thing. So, so you're so you're kind of carnivore patients that that come to you, um, and presumably, you know, they're not super happy to eat a plant, um, and and so maybe you're not going to talk to them about that. But do you, you know, just tell them, look, okay, just do what you're doing, but but vary it. Make sure you're including a spread of that. And then, do you go into micronutrients at all with them? I tend to try and get them to take a multivitamin. Okay. <laughs> um which is, I don't know if that's the most evidence-based um, thing in the world, but I also talk to them about electrolytes. Um, I, and, and often when you really nail down into someone who's doing carnivore, there is, there's something else that they're eating or there's, oh, yeah, every, you know, once a month I have pizza with my nephew or, you know, and so you kind of figure out that, oh, you're probably not going to die of scurvy because actually, you know, every Sunday you eat a bowl of strawberries or, you know, something. Um, but I've definitely, I've, I've had some carnivore patients doing some very weird things. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably would say the same. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I probably would actually say the same. Some people, they do get, they do get pretty fanatical actually about it. And, mm. you know, I don't know if you see that, but I certainly see people taking like one piece of like a soundbite they've heard and then just like running with it. Yeah. And then just and like dogmatically refusing to accept anything else. I, I, I certainly have seen that. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, yeah, I think like I prefer to see people doing carnivore more as a, you know, great elimination diet. Like it is really the, the most clean elimination diet you can get. Um, yeah. And then like to see people reintroducing things. But obviously, as you said, there's plenty of people who this is their, now their chosen way of life. And then I just, yeah, I try to talk to them about including organ meat, things like that. So, you know, that bigger micronutrient um, mm. diversity again. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of organs, actually. I used to tell people that I didn't think organs were really that essential. Um, I don't think they're essential, but I do feel like they are extremely beneficial. I feel like on a carnivore diet, they really are. You know, they're that sort of nature's multivitamin. They really are. I mean, if there is a superfood, yeah. it is probably liver. Mm. You know, yeah, to be honest. exactly. And yeah, I mean, I, I talk to patients now about carnivore really in like an elimination diet as well, actually, for the most part. And yeah. Yeah, some of them choose to do it long term. Others, they, you know, they just, most people, I think they, they end up like a slightly relaxed carnivore. Yeah, which is fine. And you know, I find I find a lot of I think it works. a lot of men really like it. A lot of single men like find they carnivore. And, and why not? Like it, it's like <laughs> that's it. Well, I think a lot of women find it actually quite freeing as well. Um, the feedback that I've I've got from from female patients is is actually pretty similar. That they it's nice for them to not have to worry as much about calories and about macros and counting and all these things that, you know, these magazines and all the social media and everything just like shoves onto women, chucks at them right, left and center, you know, that you constantly have to be worrying about your figure yeah. and, and all, all these kinds of things. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't actually <laughs> piss off. <laughs> like I, do, I get to just eat meat and I'm happy and I feel good and this is great. Um, and I think so a lot of women I think also actually do do quite like it but most people yeah, i think definitely. they end up with like a yeah, slightly relaxed carnivore so um okay is there anything else that you you know kind of wanted to cover before i wanted to talk to you a little bit about something else we spoke about off air but is there anything else you wanted to mention at this point at all okay so i wanted to cover this i'm going to share this on my screen now if i hopefully i get Streamyard working properly so there we go so the food industry paying influencer dietitians to shape your eating habits. So I don't know if you had a chance to look at this article at all, uh, Mel. I just I kind did. of said it to you before the podcast. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So essentially this article from the Washington Post was done, you know, September 13, 2023. Hopefully people can see it on the screen. 
And uh, I'll put a link in the episode description, of course, for people listening on the podcast. And basically what they're saying is that they, these, um, where are we? The breakfast, uh, American beverage, there we are, was basically paying uh, influencer, dietitians, nutritionists. I think at one point there was a physician that was also kind of named in this as well. Talking about them paying dietitians and nutritionists to promote, you know, kind of sugar, promote processed food, prom uh, no, discredit the idea that sweeteners are bad for you, that, you know, that they might cause some issues and that sugar might cause issues as well. What's what's your take on this 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 thing from the Washington Post and the FTC? Oh, I'm not surprised. Um, and I think <laughs> that's go. the problem with where you know with where we are though. Disappointing that it is dietitians and nutritionists. Like it's obviously going on all over social media. Like it's, you know, these platforms are just one big ad, I'm sure. You know, so many spots sponsored posts but yeah it's I think reading in, into that article there was a lot about you know they're supposed to be declaring it's supposed to be pretty clear that it's a sponsored post or it's a paid post and in, in something like I think 50% of those posts it wasn't very clear at all mm. um, and I know that um, the diet the dietitians Australia has you know a very clear code of conduct about how you're supposed to how you're supposed to do these kind of things. So you're supposed to very clearly just declare the things that sponsored posts. And from what I see in the Australian market, like I follow lots of dietitians um, and and there's a lot of dietitians in food, um, but so far, and maybe it's to do with the quality that I that I follow, like I haven't seen anything too scandalous. You know, I haven't I haven't seen any sort of big sugar kind of advertising or, or big big artificial sweetener um but there's lots of you know yo pros or you know there's lots of health foods i guess that are getting promoted by dietitians and obviously you know they're being paid good money for that you know mm. but um and think, and yeah sorry carry on. oh the, the dietitians australia had a long association with you know sanitarium and things yes. like that and i think they still well i think they have put some things in place that they are not anymore or at least at least looking at their website um it doesn't make it as clear if they are but i know i see a lot you know things put out um that are sponsored by you know sanitarium or danone um i listened to a low carb webinar a while ago that was put together by like um, Herman Brot, or you know, sponsored by, so it's it's everywhere. Um, but I think closure is is the important part of this. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right there. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to criticise people taking sponsorships. Um, you know, if anyone yeah. runs, wants to reach out to this podcast and sponsor the show, please reach out to me and let me know. I could do with some sponsors. Uh, maybe I can cut back my hours and spend more time with the kids if I had some sponsors. Um, but I think the point the point here is to yeah declare really those those sponsorships. I guess my follow up question then to to you would be as a, as a as a dietitian. I mean, I know you're not in charge of all of this stuff, and you said yourself you're not you're not doing any sponsored posts or anything like that. Um, do you think dietitians and nutritionists have got more of a responsibility? given that they people are going to be looking at them for that kind of health food advice versus, say, someone like uh, Mr. Beast, for example, you know, the big, oh, yeah. big, big YouTuber. Now, I see, like, servos, like, you know, Woolworths and stuff, the supermarket, here's, like, uh, these Feastables or whatever they are, like, $5 for, like, the like tiny little chocolate bar, and it's, like, it's got his face on it or something, and it's, like, it's just garbage food. And... You know, do they have more of a responsibility than, say, someone like him, who oh, isn't in that health like, space? We have, or is it we just have an obligation. we all have an we all have a responsibility if we're selling something? I mean, we you can. I mean, obviously, you know, Nestle or whoever just sell whatever they want for profit, and they feel no obligation to look after anyone. But I think if you like dietitian, it's a it's a really regulated industry and I think you have a real responsibility to think hard and to if you do choose to take sponsorship or paid advertising you really need to 
to choose wisely and think, you know, would you be happy for people to choose those products? Mm. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's just own, owning up and saying, you know, look, this is a sponsored post. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is a great product, but, yeah, like, FYI, I was gifted these six yogurts or mm. whatever it is. Yeah, I think... It's definitely all about the disclosure and it's the same, you know, if you're, um, you know, part of a research study or whatever, you know, just making sure that it's all very transparent. Yeah, I mean, that's another issue and I've done a couple of recent videos on, on you know, studies like Sydney Diet Heart Trial, Minnesota Coronary, I mean, they, they weren't, you know, specifically people not declaring interest, but, you know, people like Ansel Keys and so on, you know, from the Sugar Research Foundation, you know, very few papers out there actually really declare any any interests or, or disclosures and and it is a, it's a it's a big problem because you know we, we're trusting these people and we don't know if they're basically just getting paid to say what they're saying or if they're actually genuinely true we don't know yeah definitely yeah and and sometimes i think yeah reading studies and almost having to have a look at the authors and you know kind of have a dig into their background which you shouldn't have to do like it should be very clear it should be you should be able to pick up a paper oh look it's been sponsored put it down yeah yeah exactly (laughs) okay i'll take it with a pinch of salt you know exactly Exactly. has links for coca-cola or something for you know for example i mean i was reading thing about gary fetke before this show so i wanted to talk a little bit about it and and with dietetics australia and uh you know basically this this expert witness for for apra basically you know that was that had this big link with you know i think it was sanitarium i think was the it was the organization you know and it's like okay is that actually a fair witness to be advising on someone that's talking about low carb diet you know diets which is essentially don't eat processed sugar from someone who has links to processed sugar companies it just doesn't is that fair you know should that have been declared absolutely doesn't um i'm conscious of time now because we've been almost an hour now uh now i could keep talking about this kind of stuff forever but (laughs) our listeners might not want to go forever um was there anything that we haven't covered that you were desperate to talk about or you thought was maybe useful for the listeners for the viewers no but probably just talking about like that people shouldn't be afraid to to see a dietitian and they shouldn't really I think they over, people overlook the importance because there is so much nutrition information available but I think that's almost the reason that people should see a dietitian to to shift th- sift sorry through the through all that um, nutrition information that is bombarded at us every day you know as you said it's in magazines it's on your social media it's you know, I think, you know, going to see a professional and, you know, voicing your concerns, asking the questions, because, you know, you could pick up a book or you can read a magazine, but it's not ever going to replace that personalized service. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very good advice. Um, How can people find you socially and or, you know, social media and professionally, if they want to come and see you? Yep, so I practice at Sante Medical in Paddington, so you can always Google that, or I'm on Hot Docs as Melanie Walters Dietitian, and Melanie Walters Dietitian is my Facebook handle and my Instagram handle as well, I think, but I will, I think you've got those links of mine, you can pop in the show notes. I do, yes. I'll put them in the episode description mm-hmm. in the show notes. Absolutely. So people can go and find Melanie and uh, follow her on social media. And uh, they can obviously book in with you at Santi Medical in Paddington. That's in Brisbane, in Queensland. Um, I know Santi Medical and the team there reasonably well. I think we've met a couple of times and just around the corner from where I live. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty close. Maybe one day I'll end up working there, but who knows. Um, it's been really nice talking to you, Mel, today. And I think yeah, hopefully our viewers have... I've got some really good, uh, useful information, hopefully be a little bit less maybe um, hesitant or scared to, to maybe come and see a dietitian in the future. Hopefully. Yeah, I do see that's an issue. People do often, I think, just feel like they're just a bit scared. I don't know why. I think they're just going to, they feel like they're just going to get told they're being naughty and, you know, slap on the wrist, <laughs> which is not yeah, the case. Yeah, I do. I- I do get that a lot. Oh, oh, I'll be, I'll be totally honest. I'm like, yes, 
probably a good idea yes um well thank you very much mel for coming on the show really do appreciate it and um obviously uh, to all my viewers thank you for tuning in to this episode of the meat medic podcast make sure you guys follow on social media i'll put all of melanie's social media contacts uh, professional contacts in the episode description and follow myself at the meat medic across all social media channels thank you guys and we'll see you in the next episode thank you.